Right, I come up. That'll do for a start. Up you go, boys and girls. G'day listeners, this is the Pastoral Potty, proudly brought to you by the folks at Western Local Land Services. I'm your host, Edgar Grestan. Ground cover and stubble retention in cropping enterprises is really important for managing soil erosion in western New South Wales. Dust storms caused by wind erosion not only have a big impact on agricultural productivity, but also on towns and cities, where dust is quite literally a dirty word. So in this episode, we'll talk to a soil conservationist about how to avoid these dust storms, and we'll hear from a farmer who's trying a few innovative things, like planting into a dry riverbed to manage his ground cover and look after his soils. So my name's John Lees. I'm uh, semi-retired, but my career began with the Soil Conservation Service in Western New South Wales back in 1981. So my basic career has been around soil conservation. So working with people, especially in the Western Division, more than half my career was all my research work has been based in the more arid parts of Australia, the Mallee and up into the Simpson. So a long history in soil conservation, but the particular emphasis is on wind erosion, dust storms and how we can better manage them. John's passion for soil conservation led him to set up Dustwatch, a citizen science program that gathers data about dust storms to answer some key questions. What caused it? How big is it? Where did it come from? And how can we do something about it? So monitoring is key to all this. And so we could only set up this network by involving landholders in particular. When we first started in the far southwestern New South Wales, just about all our sites that were on leasehold land of the landholders down there. And they just gave their time for once a month to go out and check the instrument. Um, if we have problems with it, we can ring them up and they would help us. But I think the biggest reason they stayed involved, like we've never had a dust watch uh, uh, leave out of uh, lack of enthusiasm. And I think the reason is because we talk to them regularly. We ring people up, we ask them questions. Because if you think about a monitoring device, it's an answer without any reason why. So you get a high dust concentration in your instrument, but you don't know why. You don't know where it came from. And that's what the volunteers give you. At the same time, they feel, I think, empowered because they can tell their stories. And because we have a monitoring network with stories that people tell, so they're telling us why. A story is always much more interesting than a number. Um, I think they also feel that they are providing information that is being used and they can actually see their role in it. Dustwatch plays an important role in helping us understand the causes behind dust storms, which have a significant impact in our Australian landscape. Currently in the world, Australia's in probably the, well, in the southern hemisphere, we're the biggest dust emitter. And most of that comes out of the central, what they call it, sort of lake air basin area. There's a misconception that it all comes out of the lake. It does come out of the lake at time, but it's really, it's the rangelands around it. It's the interface between what we call the fluvial country, where all the roos are. So think about the channel country. And then you think about the lakes at the end of it. There's a big conveyor belt. So in the wet seasons like this, all those rivers... Uh, washing sediment down through the floodplains and into the lakes. It all dries out and there's all this loose sediment behind, left behind. So if we don't get uh, another rain event to make the sediment get covered up with grasses and things, it just sits there. And then the next big wind event comes along and it blows it out. So it's like a conveyor belt. It gets blown up into the east and then the water washes it back down, especially through the channel country and down the Darling into the south, into the lower parts of the landscape and then it gets blown back out again. So that's sort of the big geological picture and it's the interface between the 
fluvial systems, a watery washing sediment down, and then the wind blowing it back out. That makes Australia such a dusty place compared to many others. With that historical context in mind around wind erosion, can you talk a bit about the, the impact on, on properties and, and farming systems in the rangeland area? Certainly. So the impacts for wind erosion are twofold. <clears throat> As you say, they're on the farm and then there's the impacts off the farm. So if you think about the erosion on the farm, uh, being sediment moved around, fences being buried, uh, vegetation being sandblasted, infrastructure basically getting damaged, that's sort of the on-farm impact. Plus there's, and then there's the off-farm impact is when the dust leaves the farm, it goes somewhere. And that's the biggest economic impact, actually. It's about a 10 to 1 ratio. So for every $10 of economic cost in, say, Sydney, there's probably about $1 lost in the agricultural areas. And we published a paper about the Red Dawn dust event. came through September 2009, which had the lowest visibility in Sydney, and 400 metres. I mean, there was pictures of the Harbour Bridge. You couldn't see from one end of the Harbour Bridge to the other. That single event blew about 2.5 million tonnes of soil off the coast. The actual dirt was probably worth about 9 million. But it cost the economy $300 million in lost production or extra costs. One of the biggest costs was just cleaning it up. I remember going to the airport in Tamworth and the poor old cleaner was telling me it took her three goes at mopping the floor to get the dust out. And I was talking to some friends in Sydney and they said, yeah, then I used to have a nice swimming pool and now it was full of blue-green algae. Because that's what dust is, it's full of nutrients. So the dust storms have these two impacts. So the good news is that the land management practices that we were using in the 1940s created a lot more dust than the land management practices we use now, even though you're probably using more of the landscape. So we did a study in which we presented at the Australian Rangeland Conference uh, last October, and we basically looked at the dust storm activity in the 1940s and compared it to 2019. And there was about four times less dust in 2019 than there was in 1945. So that's good news. I mean, you know, that's a major achievement. The big differences in the past were a lack of people, a lack of resources, and the farming system was pretty exploitative. Today, we've got much better resources. So the, the rangelands have uh, the ability to water their country more effectively because they've got watering points distributed all around it, thanks to polypipe and windmills. But you need to fence your country, you need to manage your stock, you manage your pastures. And the farming systems were improved dramatically. I mean, the biggest improvement has been stubble retention and either by killing the weeds with, with uh, chemicals or just reducing the number of cultivations and disturbing the soil less, which leaves more ground cover. So those are the big changes of today, which I attribute to why we now have less dust storms, even though we just had probably the worst drought in 2019 in terms of temperature and lack of rainfall than we've had in the last 100 years. Some of the drilling companies that I work for, so 
just got to see a lot of pros and cons and different ways that people did things and tried to work out for myself which looked like the most successful and the most beneficial for the environment and the farmer, which seemed to go in and in. So I've tried to put those concepts into place here. So talk me through some of those ideas you've brought back to the farm. So we try and spell 50% of our cropping country every year. Just to give it a spell, uh, always cross-sowing or diagonally sowing. We've, instead of carrying our own ewes, we um, buy in ewes. So that gives the country sort of six months extra spell on that sort of 600, 700 ewes. Just trying to look after the topsoil and rejuvenate it, I suppose. Can you tell me a little bit about the cross-sowing practices that you've introduced? What are some of the things that you've actually done that that you sort of brought from from your experience travelling around? I've always um, asked all the good farmers that you come across to sort of do that irrigation and ask them what they do and how they do things. And a couple of those down in South Australia were cross-sowing, so... We've just decided to try that practice here, but due to, due to it being so wet, time won't permit this year. Um, it's a little bit more expensive on fuel to save, but, but your long-term yields seem to be higher, so you know it all averages out, but uh, there's not as much degradation of your soil. So it seems to work for us, but I don't know, we're only having a go. How does it differ from sort of conventional sowing practices can you sort of describe a little bit in terms of the your, your, your actual process for someone who's never done it just sort of thinking about it our, our idea is to try and cover 100 percent shade over the soil between our crop rows so um we can achieve that which to us then says less dryness more moisture retention for our crops and your nutrients and nitrogen spread more evenly over more plants so if you Spending that amount of fuel on fuel and fertiliser, you may as well get the best out of it. Try and protect the soil at the same time. Do you have to sort of plan differently for it? You do with your chemical and that sort of thing, but that can all be planned. But the biggest issue this year, as I said, you know, we're going to run your time constraint with the weather. Uh, it's just, it just hasn't been real, real wet, but it's been constantly moist. So we haven't done as much sowing at this stage. So we'll probably revert back to just straight directional and... and uh, We've just got to play it by ear at this stage. So flexibility is the key, right? Obviously, just going with the conditions and, and what what the land's telling you. Well, I think that's that's the way. I mean, the environment and the land sort of is the boss, isn't it? We're, we're only custodians of it, so we plan to be here for a long time, so we're trying to do the best we can to look after it. So it looks after us. You know, over the years, this has just been sown as it always was for years and years. Well, we've just changed change small things to try and benefit us which it has i mean just a basic thing if you've got a rise we don't say parallel with the rise like water runs downhill and it always carries topsoil with it doesn't it i'm curious to sort of understand how things looked before you kind of came and introduced some of the practices that you've discovered a lot of slot washouts there's a lot of bare dry country that would blow you know, a lot of clay pans, most of our clay pans have all taken up now. Uh, we've only got a few little patches left and we shouldn't have any clay pans as such really too much on our place. There's a couple down near the highway that we haven't done any work on, but um, we've nearly got ground cover all over the place. What's been the key for you around around managing those clay pans? We've just tried to look after them. We've kept the stock off them, roughed them up in a drought. We've spread hay solely across the clay pan to try and put a bit of a windbreak there 
the middle of the sheep break it up a little bit, but it seems to hold with the bundles of hay piled through it. And before you know it, in a couple of years, it's back to vegetation. Getting that vegetation back on the landscape is key to stopping soil erosion and potential dust storms. And ground cover has a double benefit in that not only does it stop soil leaving your property, it can also catch soil from elsewhere, as John Lees explains. So the ground cover, it stops soil from blowing away, but also if you've, you've got it and your neighbour hasn't, if there's a dust storm goes through, you get more dust deposition. And you've got to remember the dust is about three to four times more nutrients in it than the soil it comes from. Dust is enriched, and that's the reason is that the dust is basically clays and organics, and they're the small parts of the soil that they get blown out. So if you're a dust storm and you're wandering across the landscape and you come across a bit of vegetation, it slows you down. Your wind is slowed down and you get deposition. So if you've got trees and shrubs and grasses on your property, you actually pick up deposited dust. And it's not inconsequential. There are, in Western New South Wales, there's about 100 tonnes of dust per square kilometre being dropped every year. And in these big dust storms, we can get you know, that in a day. I mean, there's an old uh, adage from when I worked in the Mallee back in the 80s. There used to be signs saying, caution, paddock crossing road. So if you can keep vegetation, you can, um, A, not lose your dust, and B, you can catch some. So it's a, it's a win-win. It's one of the best tools land managers have, but it's also one of the most difficult because there's this trade-off. In the rangelands, it's about juggling feed availability and livestock demands and reducing the period of fallow ground in cropping rotations. And part of John's work in soil conservation over the years has addressed these issues. I guess when we began the soil conservation project to try and maximise the amount of ground cover, in the farming areas, the rotation used to be a three-year one. So they would um, fallow the ground for nine months before they sow the crop. The crop was sown, grown, uh, the sheep were then put into it and it was utilised. The stubble would be knocked down. In the next season, the weeds would grow through the stubble and um, there'd be more feed. So it basically went from being a stubble dominated to a pasture dominated. Tend to be annual pastures. And then they would sort of begin the cycle. So every three years they were getting a crop. And the weakness we found in that system is the grassy part. The grassy part was, one, it had the opportunity if it was dry. Uh, grass doesn't hang around as long as stubble. It's just not as robust. So if you had a dry season, it would blow away. If you're going to plough it up, or especially use conservation tillage and um, try and keep it on the surface, if you disturb any pasture, it just oxidises and breaks down rather rapidly. The stubble doesn't, it hangs around a bit longer. So the first simple system was to close, what we call close up the rotation, try and grow a crop every two years. So fallow, crop, fallow, crop. And that was the beginning of the conservation farming. So in the, the numbers I was looking at from the lower part of the Western Division, we've seen this happen. What we've seen is that the cropping cycle has closed up. We see more crops in the landscape than we did in the last 10 years than we did in the first 10 years. So that is a simple strategy which relies on stubble management. Uh, it also had the one benefit that we've, the agronomists tell me that the grassy phase is also a time when you tend to get disease buildup in the, in the sandy soils. So by keeping the grasses out, um, using chemical control and not letting the numbers build up again, uh, that your crops tend to do better. The trade-off is you now need to put in more fertiliser because you've got to feed the crop. Obviously, the more you grow, the more you've got to feed. 
And so that was sort of a simple approach. And we saw big benefits just out of that simple thing. Um, it didn't mean changing your crop varieties or anything. You just did the same thing, but you'd close the rotation up to two years. But it did mean you then had to change your equipment so you could handle some of the stubble. So instead of incorporating in the ground with a disc plough, we're encouraging people to use trash plough machinery like chisel ploughs so they could then get the machinery through and sow it. There's also trade-offs there, but they, they've all been overcome. Another innovation has been sowing a diverse mix of crops to assist with soil health. John told me about some research done by CSIRO that looked at sandy loam soils that are known to be less productive and how to boost them. They started thinking about, okay, how do we enrich these sands? So they looked at rotating crops. So they were growing different types of crops. They were using different chemicals that wouldn't kill the bugs. Uh, they had a, a wonderful uh, scientist uh, from CSIRO down in Adelaide, Gupta, and he was basically able to say, these chemicals are bad for bugs and these ones are good. So they were able to make sure that when they were spraying, they weren't killing the bugs. And at the same time, they were providing different types of food. So back to an analogy of when you go to lunch, you know, if, if you've got you know, tuna sandwiches all your life, it's not very exciting. But if you go some days and there's, you know, there's different types of things, think about different crops, the bugs are much happier. So rotating legumes and cereals and different types of crops also was better for the soil biology. Uh, it was better for the nutrient cycling, but it also has a trade-off. Once again, once you put in legumes, those stubbles don't last long. Uh, animals love them, and they're easily dislodged and they blow away. So they have a risk, but they were basically showing that by sowing a crop every year was probably the best way to go on the sands because you can't store soil moisture. But as you can see, I've already described a system which is a fair bit more complex with more crop types more thinking, more measuring. You know, you've got to measure your nitrogen content in your soil. You've got to look at your soils more in detail to know exactly what decision to make. But I think out of that, we've seen a major shift. And what we have seen in across the Mallee is there are now more farmers sowing different types of crops. So one of the things I see a lot of in the lower part of New South Wales at the moment is vetch. They're dry sowing vetch and it's providing feed, it's providing a disease break, it's providing a nutrient input. It's also got this danger zone that you know, it doesn't provide much stubble and so you've got to make sure you have a lot of stubble there when you put the vetch in in the first place. But so those concepts I think are around trying to maximise the amount of growing material you can do, i.e. use as much of the rainfall as possible, and at the same time, maximising your usage through the stocking cycle, being more strategic, saying I can stock it now, when stocking a vetch paddock or a pea paddock, it's a real art. You can't leave them in there too long because A, they'll eat it all and the smorgasbord will be cleared out and uh, the soil will blow away. But at the same time, there's, there is value in grazing it. Getting in and getting out is the trick. So we just have another rule of thumb, which is basically if you can see 50% of your stubble standing up, so you start after harvest, it's all standing up in the air. And then the stock get in and they start to knock it around. They're picking up the grain. It starts to fall over. When about half of it is on the ground, about half of it's standing up. That's a good time probably to pull the stock out. Of course, the standing stuff is going to protect it. It's also going to provide some um, material for the bugs. And at the same time, I'm told by some of the agronomists and uh, sheep people in the Western Local Land Services that the nutrient value of stubble isn't particularly good so just leaving them in there to knock the stubble down is probably not going to achieve the goal of feeding the animals but it is going to have a cost of reducing the amount of material which is there for the bugs and for the 
soil protection. So those are two sort of systems. There's just close up the rotation, keep it simple, but retain stubble, or go to a sort of a continuous cropping. Anytime it rains, think about what can I do with this rain and adapt for that. So the general rule is, if possible, sow a crop. And we're even seeing saw some work, recent work in um, South Australia where basically they're taking any opportunity to sow anything from a, during the year. So with the increased variability, they're even sowing summer crops on the Air Peninsula with the hope of increasing ground cover just in case they don't get an autumn break. Because they had a good rain in November, they're whacking a cover crop. So those are the sorts of things people are doing uh, at the moment. They're just looking for any opportunity to grow something. And from a soil biology point of view, that's the best thing as well. For Darren O'Halloran, who we heard from earlier, managing his grazing and cropping enterprises is about spreading the risk and judging the seasonal conditions. We'll only graze in if it's damp and we're not gonna, and, you know, we've got plenty of natural grasses, but you know, even this year we've got two half paddocks sown, so that'll give us a 50-50 on next year, whether we'll be putting stock in there or not. Uh, and, and the year after, we'll, we'll sow the other half. So it's all just variation, play as we go to the seasons. If, if the season's not right, well, you look after your stubble country, but if the season's fine, well, you can utilise it. So we vary, and, you know, we're not here to tell anyone what we're just doing what works best for us. Thinking about that, do you have any advice for other graziers, other croppers in terms of different things you've tried? Um, is there something that stands out or is there an approach that, that you would recommend for people to take? Oh, I just just think keep an eye on your stocking rates if you can you can reduce and produce better stock do the sums on whether that seems to work for you certainly i've utilized some grazing varieties of um, grain which takes the pressure off our pasture areas so while we're actually growing grain and those paddocks would have normally been locked up we can get three months feed for our stock out of that and still get a crop off it so that's been pretty beneficial Although the yields aren't as good as straight out crop, when you tie them two together, I think you come out in front. To manage his cropping country and take the pressure off his grazing paddocks during a dry time back a few years ago, Darren also experimented with sowing a crop into a dry lake bed. I can just remember from originally when I was around here, sort of 25 years ago, that if you got a dry time, you got a dry time, but there was always, you know, if you had moisture under a lake bed, always wanted to try and put some loosen under there and... Or on top of it, because as everyone sort of knows, Lucent's a pretty deep-rooted plant and will chase the moisture, so I just wanted to try the theory. What year was that that you tried that? We've still got Lucent around the edge now, but there's water in it, so that would have been right in the middle of the drought. When was that? 16, 17, was it? We didn't get any cracks in the bottom of the lake, and usually it cracks. So so we did that, and um, yeah, we've got six years of Lucent out of it. Yeah, it's been pretty, pretty helpful. I suppose that's probably helped with... A lot of our erosion and overstocking issues because we have that as extra feed. As well as accessing water underground, Darren's also using irrigation and it's all about maximising efficiency across different parts of the property. Yeah, look, I haven't finished fully establishing it yet because I want to, um, they're on heavier ground and I've got plans to go over to lighter ground where the water will be certainly, like we're saving water using them down here on heavier ground, but if we can get onto the lighter country, it'll be a, a huge water saving for the same result. You've currently got your centre pivots on heavier country. 
tell me how that's sort of working and, and what's your sort of strategy, I suppose. Oh, well, it's just a top-up, really. We um, are sown to the season, so we've had good rains this year. So we'll sow a bit heavier and put more fur on, and we're roughly, because of the way the water system works, we'll roughly use about the same amount of water so we don't depend on, you know, relying on someone else and having to lease in water at exorbitant prices. We operate within our capacity. It, it's an ongoing process, so we work it out as we're floating along. And, and you've got to because you can't, we don't know what the allocation is going to be. So we've got general and high security, but yeah, we've got a bit of a system working so that we'll, we'll always should be able to water decent crops, but it just depends on the water year, really. But it's a drought proofing exercise, you know. There's always going to be some sort of feed that we've grown ourselves through our stock if we, if we do come into dry times, which no doubt we will. There was a landholder down in Rampoonkeri who told me many, many years ago he would just count up how much rain he had had in the previous 18 months. And sometime around February, March, he would then make the decision, if I haven't had the right amount of rain, I'm then going to start to destock, regardless what the paddock looks like today. So he, he had this idea that how much rain you've had in the past is going to affect how much production you're likely to get in the future. So uh, it's understanding that your climate is the big driver, basically rainfall, because you're growing plants. But if your rainfall is decreasing, then the management needs to change. I mean, this is not new, people know this, but the hardest part for everyone is to know the trigger points when, and as I was saying, that landholder around Poonkerry, he, he had a trigger point. He said, if I got this amount of rain, then I'm fine. If I don't have this amount of rain, I need to start destocking early while prices are still good. That was his strategy. And the same thing happens in cultivated paddocks. Um, people walk around, they dig holes, see how much soil moisture you've got, how much have you stored in the ground. Uh, so that helps you make a decision about the risk when you go to sow the crop. So that's another antecedent rainfall approach, just how much moisture have I got? And then you weigh that up against um, what's coming in the future, but the idea is still to have as much cover there. bloke that's come back on the land and having a go and trying different things that's all we're really keen to hear from people who are trying different things and and the journey that you've been on i think is really valuable what is it that made you come back on the land after you know having grown up on it and, and being away oh i think the opportunity and lifestyle for the family and my parents were obviously not young anymore so the opportunity arose and I sort of always wanted to but as, as most people know it's pretty hard to get back into the land or a substantial holding from day dot these days it's getting too expensive and the opportunity arose and I thought we could sort of do it a bit different and have a go and no worries there's been a few sleepless nights and a lot of late nights working out in the paddock but well, I think we've slowly crawled over the other side now it's starting to go the right way. If I could do one thing for landholders, it would be given access to the information about their property at their property scale, and two, give them the understanding of looking at the patterns. So these idea of monitoring your ground cover is something that we've, well, I've been working on for a decade, 
trying to make this satellite information that NASA pushes out and CSIRO processes available to anyone. So I can give you a link and you can put it on your phone and you can see this data on your phone. It'll tell you how much ground cover you've got. It'll give you an anomaly. Is it above or below average? And it'll give you a decile ranking. Is it the most cover that's ever been or is it the least cover that's ever been in this month at this site? And the fact that you can do it on your phone is awesome. And this year we'll be increasing the resolution of the data. So at the moment, um, if you went there today, it'll be on a 500 by 500 meter pixel. But by the end of the year, we're hoping to have it the Landsat data, which is 30 meter by 30 meter. So you can see within the paddock, it'll tell you in this area, if you've had this amount of rainfall, say 250 millimeters, and you're still going into the dry season, the chances are we'll be getting below 50% or 30% ground cover, which was going to reduce your erosion level. So it's actually doing what that landholder was doing with rainfall, we're going to try and do with cover. When you get to this number, and you've had this amount of rainfall, it's, it's decision time. So yeah, that's the uh, CSIRO project. It's funded by the National Land Care Program. The tool is called RAP Map. The Pastoral Potty is brought to you by Western Local Land Services and is supported through funding from the Australian Government's National Land Care Program. The episode was mixed and edited by me, Edgar Greste. And a big thanks to all our guests for their time and insights. To catch all the other episodes, subscribe to the show and please share it with a mate. Thanks for listening. <laughs>